0: mixtape just around the corner did a lot in california
1: can't wait to drop this hello gonna and welcome like back to the podcast that is always up to speed with formula one mark daly and mark hamilton here along with a very special guest uh, co-host that we'll introduce in just a moment for our inaugural formula
0: one book club hammy how's it going today buddy Oh, it is going fantastic weather. And again, we always talk about not regionalizing the podcast, but weather. summer has arrived in Vancouver. So I'm very happy. Uh, I'll be doing Dude, a quick trip to the US tomorrow. Dude, you've been saying summer's
1: arrived for the last two months okay. every time we get a sunny okay. day, but okay. hey, that's okay. just okay. me. That's just me. But
0: driving to the US tomorrow. So uh, we'll be amongst our, our American listeners, which is fantastic, but I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing great. And let's introduce our special guest co-host
1: tonight. Why don't you do that? Uh, you can introduce our special guest co-host because this is a relationship that you've, you know, grown over the weeks and months in the past. So why don't you do the honor, sir? Yeah,
0: absolutely. So incredibly excited that. Very good friend of the show, Bird Pinkerton, joining us from New York City, uh, resides in Brooklyn, the beautiful city of Brooklyn, is joining us today. Bird and I, our relationship began probably, I guess we're getting close to a year ago, and really the relationship was spawned just out of a shared and mutual love of Formula One and to a, a lesser extent, a specific team in Formula One. But Bird, you and I have been talking about doing a book club episode for it feels like an eternity one, we're doing it. And two, welcome to the show. How are you?
2: Hi, um, I'm doing I'm doing great. I will say that uh, whatever the weather is up there, um, it is still disgustingly hot here in New York. <laughs> so it's great. I'm glad you guys are coming to the US so you can really not enjoy the weather here with with all of us. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh I I as uh, it's gonna be weird calling one of you Mark or <laughs> Mark <laughs> <As> <laughs> Hamilton uh, says uh, I I reached out to him. Uh, i guess over like twitter or something uh, and then it turns out that that he is uh, he loves to gossip about formula 1
1: well <laughs> oh, formula 1 is only one of the things that hamilton likes to gossip about which <laughs> Stop uh, it. Is, 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 Stop is actually it. kind of a nice kind of teaser for what we're going to get to later in the show with his his namesake but uh, well why why don't we kind of build on it from there so Just maybe tell everybody a little bit more about yourself and how you got into F1 and how you would kind of describe your journey along Formula One fandom.
2: Yeah, so, you know, I am normally just like a a science reporter, uh, and I would say that until like May of 2021, I had not only not watched F1, I had never watched like a sport. (laughs) in in my life I did not really understand sports uh I had you know like a a healthy skepticism for the whole genre um (laughs) but uh yeah as you as you may remember there was a little thing called a global pandemic um starting in 2020 but continuing into 2021 sadly and so uh my my friend, essentially, we were watching the Monaco Grand Prix together. And I was like, what is this? Like, <laughs> what is this? Why is this? I don't understand. This isn't a thing. Um, and he said, no, like, watch this show. Watch this Netflix show. You might change your mind. Um, and again, global pandemic. I had plenty of time on my hands. Uh, so I started watching Drive to Survive. Like, I don't think that I stopped watching. Like, I know I must have stopped watching because, like, sleep and food uh, are, like, necessary things in one's life. But it felt like I just, like, did not stop watching until (laughs) I would gotten through the entire thing. And I was like, cool, this is all that matters to me now, or maybe ever. <laughs> um, and so that was sort of what started me on, I was like watching, you know, chain bear videos on YouTube to be like, what is this dirty air? Like, who is a downforce? And then I was, I started listening to all these uh, podcasts, uh, one of which was, you know, your podcast, which I thoroughly enjoy still every week. Um, and then One of the things that really got me into F1 um, even further, like this thing that I love to do whenever I get into anything is just to read as many books as is humanly possible on a subject. And so I was reading like driver biographies and like these beautiful works of like F1 history that exist um, and and just really feeling like that part of like the, the books themselves really, I think, pulled me even more so than, than DTS in some ways, like deep into my love for, for the sport. And so I'm grateful for them, but also like excited to kind of talk through them with some people who've been watching the sport for a lot longer than I have (laughs) and can maybe weigh in with more information.
1: It's kind of funny because of myself, I'm a prolific reader. I mean, despite being insanely busy with many things in addition to family, work, and podcasts, wh- whenever I have a spare moment, I always have. Uh, I have a. I, I take my e-reader with me everywhere, and it is ridiculously loaded with books on almost any subject. But I don't typically read a lot about Formula One. So when when Hamilton came up with this idea that you guys had uh, that you were discussing, I was like, oh yeah, count me in. This would be, this would be really fun, but. So this this book we're going to talk is going to be a favorite team for a lot of people but it bird it might not necessarily be your favorite team. So before we get into that, why don't you just tell us like cuz everybody criticizes Hamilton for being a Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton homer, but that's that, that's okay maybe on this kind of show because it's outside of the norm that we can kind of divulge and reveal some of our our favorite teams and drivers. I mean, I grew up in an era when Williams was number 1. I grew up a big fan of Nigel Mansell and Damon Hill. And of course, Jacques Villeneuve raced for them and kind of went from there. So what about you? Who's your favorite team? Who's your favorite driver? Everybody's got one.
2: Oh, I am shamelessly like I love Williams forever. <laughs> Williams is the best team. I don't understand why everyone doesn't see it. Uh, <laughs> my like quick pitch to people for Williams is one, you can buy Williams merch and not have it be like advertising for 16 other things. Two it's like I know that they've been purchased by Doralton Capital, but it still feels like that team is it's it's the heart of F1. it's it's one of the few teams on the grid that really feels like they're only there for F1 and and nothing else. they're not trying to sell you cars they're not trying to sell you energy drinks uh, they're they're selling you someone's last name. Uh, which I, which I really appreciate. And then also, um, I don't know. I just love it. I love an underdog. Uh, last year, I still love George Russell. I love George Russell a lot. Uh, so he sort of was my favorite driver. I, he's still, uh, probably my favorite driver, but, uh, Albon is is really up there as well, in part because he drives for the best team on the grid.
1: (laughs) That's awesome. Hey, so guys, why don't we just take a quick pause here? We'll take a a quick break because on the other side, we're going to introduce the book and we're going to dive right into it. This was a great read. It was a lot of fun and we can't wait to share it with you. So guys, don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. Passion, drive, and patience. Okay, welcome back to the inaugural episode of the Scuderia Formula One Podcast Book Club. Mark Mark and Bert Pinkerton here to break it down. Who wants to do the honors? Mark, you got to introduce the guest. I got to introduce the show. I guess it's only fair that Bird should introduce the book. Well, I mean, because she also picked it and suggested, (laughs) hey guys, this should be the one. (laughs) So why don't you introduce it and then just uh, tell us why you chose the book and what you liked about it.
2: Yeah, so this is uh, it's a book called The Mechanic. It is written by a, formula, a former uh, McLaren mechanic. His name is Mark Elvis Priestley.
1: <laughs> what a great nickname! Um, what a great yeah, nickname. I
2: agree. And um, I picked it, I think, because it was a book that when I when I first read it, it just feels like it really introduces you to so much about what's can be so like fascinating about the f1 world and maybe so troubling about the f1 world like it is it's very i think he's very honest about (laughs) a lot of uh the the highs and lows of of formula one and also um you know i i enjoyed it because he he's really good at like Building suspense. Um, he has a lot of scenes <laughs> in this book where, whether it's like he's trying to per- like do a good pit stop, or he's like gotten in trouble for some shenanigans, or the team has gotten in trouble for some shenanigans, he'll like lay out what the shenaniganry was, and then he'll spend all of this time sort of imagining what the consequences could be. And it's often just him being like, I could lose <laughs> my job or like everyone's going to lose their job. And like, I have a mortgage. And he, he like, he takes you through like the whole him freaking out. And then generally it's like, and then everything was fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it it really like, and again, with a pit stop, it's the same thing where he's just imagining all the things that could go wrong. And I think it, in that way, the book really, does a good job of also introducing you to some of the emotions of being on that pit wall or the stakes of it. Um, Because, it, it would be easy to just sort of look back and be like, and then I did a perfect pit stop and he, he knows how to milk it.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I love the one. I think it was when he was the the first time in the pit crew in Australia. I can't, remember. I guess it's sort of like early two thousands and the, he was the guy who would be holding the replacement nose and front wing. And right. he like ran out there. He was like so amped up. He ran out there. He's waiting for Kimmy to come back in the pits and he was the only one there <laughs> literally waiting for an eternity <laughs> and just uh, i just love how he kind of like played that out but w- so i'll, I'll ask and either just you just
2: to be yeah, oh, go just, ahead, to, just to one one detail that i think will be helpful for people yeah. is that he was a he as he sort of d- self-describes it, he was a mechanic from the sort of period of like 2000 to, I believe it's like 2008, 2009. Yes, so he's correct. sort of in that decade of like there being a ton of tobacco sponsorship, like uh Kimi coming, Kimi Raikkonen's coming in, uh, like Fernando, Lewis uh, are, are just getting their foot. So he's, he's sort of there in that period um, yeah. and then stops after that.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that that's great. So, I was just going to ask you guys, like, what did you think about his writing style? I mean, like, Bird, you really uh, described it nicely. uh, That that you know, he really knows how to build suspense and really kind of get into him. Because the way that I kind of like read Elvis is he's an all or nothing kind of guy. It's you know, you're 150 percent in or Don't even bother coming up or coming out. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's what it is, if it's working as a mechanic, if it's, uh, you know, enjoying like the, uh, the high life, the party life, which they obviously did a lot of in those days. And then just even like the pranks, it's just like he's all or nothing. And it's it, it's really, really uh, in- interesting. I mean, but I felt like the book had a nice flow to it. I felt it went, you know, he really kind of took you through the progression nicely of his career, how he got, he worked his way up through the, the lower formula and he gets into Formula One at a fairly young age too. I mean, he was only in his early 20s and he stuck around for a decade and he witnessed some incredible moments and some incredible highs and lows and I thought that his his writing style and just the flow of the book was – it really worked for me. I really enjoyed it.
0: I, I'm sure both of you have read biographies in the past, and and you put it down at a certain point And it's just clear to you that the individual that's being documented is not the person who was the one typing up the book. <laughs> to to oh, 100%. Me, yeah. It's pretty clear that – there wasn't a ghostwriter here or if no. there was, it was almost just for feedback and input and things like that. And I think that lends the book a sense of authenticity because as he describes events and moments yeah. and circumstances and outcomes, it just feels very real because he's using verbiage and language that I would expect somebody to tell me if they were telling me a true story of something that happened. Yeah. Like it sounds like you're sitting next to him at certain points in the pub on a stool as he's describing some of his 100%. latest shenanigans with his team. And it's not yeah super flowery it's not inauthentic but i thought the writing style was very good and at first i actually i actually criticized the book for that but as it went on it became an endearing trait of the story and the way he kind of narrated that i i really really liked i don't know if you guys agree yeah 100 i felt like it really gave a real organic feel to the book
1: because you know like you say i mean it, there wasn't like a, a ghostwriter there it felt like i don't want to make it sound cruel but it it, it kind of kind of almost had like a not like a rough like a sort of feel to it, but you could just kind of tell like the way that it was written and narrated was by somebody that was really conveying like their experiences and wasn't necessarily who was like somebody who was a professional biographer or a really? writer or something thought like that. I
2: think that he sorry, I I would I just would disagree. Really? <laughs> I, would, I thought he's I think he's a well, I, I personally found him to be a very good writer in terms of that like sort of structuring store stories. Like people are often not particularly good at telling their own stories he he did have sort of like mixed bags of yeah
1: chapters. <laughs> so I, I I think that his writing style is very nice but the the way that he kind of tells the story like Mark said it it, it had like a feeling that I felt like I was almost being told the story almost face to face rather than reading the story I, I guess that's how I kind of experienced it and that's what I mean that what it's got more of a ornate uh, an organic feel to it rather than style
0: than a criticism. I think. Yeah, Yeah,
1: Yeah, exactly. It's it's not, yeah, yeah. 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 it's, it's not a gossipy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's it's not a
2: gossiping.
1: Yeah. I'm not trying to be critical about it because I thought like the, the way that the book was written, I thought it really worked for the, for the stories and everything that he was trying to tell.
0: Listen, I think we're all here for one reason and that's to get into the juicy part. of the book. (laughs) So I, I think one, again, the book, uh, Mark, Elvis Priestley, And by the way, as you guys were describing the Elvis, it finally dawned on me why that's his nickname. I couldn't put it together (laughs) until a few moments ago. Uh, The book is fantastic. And and Bert, I really like that you describe the era in which it takes place because I think for a lot of people that are newer to Formula One, obviously there's some recency bias and they know what happened the last couple of years. And they're probably able to put together a pretty good picture of everything that happened since 2014. The book does a fantastic job of immersing you in that 2000 to 2009 period. So it runs right into the global recession, which rocked the very foundation of Formula One. But it describes all of those years, which to me, I often describe as maximum Formula One, maximum tobacco money, which you described, maximum finances, maximum spending, and maximum craziness. After the global recession, the sport became much more mundane and controlled, even, even more so than even now. But I think this book does a job, a really great job of describing just the craziest potentially the craziest era of the sport the craziest aerodynamics and like i said the craziest financing so all of that said there's some really juicy stuff here where do where do we want to start well
1: yeah i mean I was just going to say, sorry, Bird. Uh, just to say, first of all, I mean, when you know, Mark's laid out this nice background because there's some really, really big names and personalities in Formula One at this time. You've got Ron Dennis, who's head of McLaren. You've got Max Mosley, who's the head of the FIA. You've got Bernie Ecclestone, who's the, um, the the you know the head of Formula One and Formula One management. You got team principals uh, in addition to Ron Dennis, like Flavio Briatore. Very polarizing egos and very polarizing people that, you know, you either, you know, I guess if you work in that organization, you know, you're probably one of their guys or one of their girls and you probably love them. But, you know, on the outside, you know, I know there's a lot of people out there that don't have a lot of love for, you know, somebody like Brea Tori or Ecclestone, for example.
2: So let's actually start, I mean, Brea Tori and Ecclestone aside, cause they're less touched on in here. Yes. I actually think this is like a perfect place to start with, the my favorite part of the book <laughs> in terms of the juiciness, which is just kind of he spends a lot of the initial chapters just laying out like the the culture at McLaren. Um mm-hmm. He sort of talks about like what it's like to be a mechanic there. Like he, he gets into kind of gossip about specific drivers later, but but he 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 talks a lot about you you mentioned Ron Dennis and he sort of has all these chapters about like what Ron Dennis is like as a boss and i think Adrian Newey has stuff about this as well in his his book that is perhaps even less flattering <laughs> than this one but like you know he's describing like he's working in this uh like space where he's not allowed to play the radio and like everything has to be just so when like Ron Dennis has like a, a a trillion and one rules for like how McLaren is supposed to run and like the strictness of McLaren. There's like a scene that I I love so much where they're in their garage and like they're not allowed to like, they're not allowed to have music and they're not allowed to have sugary snacks for some reason. <laughs> and the right. Renault garage, which is having like way more fun next door, uh, they turn up the music for them and they're like bringing them care packages of snacks. So it's, he creates this sort of, this world of McLaren, which I found really sort of compelling and interesting. But uh, I think the thing that that I was excited to talk about uh, in this section with you all is this idea of he, he sort of presents Ron Dennis, right this this quasi dictatorial boss. Uh, he says you know McLaren wasn't built by by committee. it was sort of built by Ron Dennis's single-minded vision and he presents this as, as maybe a good thing like he, he talks about how great <laughs> Ron Dennis was even though he sort of made quote unquote some mistakes but then he lays out mistakes <laughs> uh, <laughs> and they are i i have thoughts but i'm curious what you all made of of just some of the 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 stuff that he drops about like M- mclaren's innovations quote-unquote well, over the course of his tenure
1: i, I don't know I, I had a bit of a laugh you know about like was it the special like mclaren onesies that were they designed by Hugo boss or something like that and like the knee pads weren't comfortable you had to like unzip and basically remove the entire suit to go to the bathroom and then they they came came back with like a version 2.0 and it had like a, a zippable bum flap and you still had to take it off because you still had to <laughs> hike down your drawers to go to the you know, go to the Bathroom, <laughs> you know, because it, it's so funny. Because you've got like on one side, you've got like this this, this Formula One team that is basically employing space age technology on the on the racetrack, and you've almost got this you know, th- this comical scene of like these mechanics and people running around in the pits and they can't even go to the bathroom properly because like these, these overalls are just so poorly designed. And then there's the other ones that had like the, what was it? Like the liquid cooled suits or something like mm-hmm. that. You know, it was funny. And then yeah. just, and then, then even further on, you know, Mark always likes uh, to talk about the, the McLaren technology center and it's supposed to be like the state of the art building. And it just like, it sounds so crazy because it just sounds like, like the way that he describes it that it's just almost there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of logic to some of the ways it's like you know you got to go from one side of the factory to the other and then it's like underground and you have to like kind of like move the cars around and multiple like maneuvers to get it around the corner and th- things like that and you know of course it's like completely spotless and all these uh, am- amazing things well mark what else did you pu- uh, pick up
0: I've got a lot of thoughts, but I can see on Bird's face, she wants to interject here. Bird, you go first, because I've got a bunch of stuff, but I want to hear what you've got to say.
2: Oh, gosh. I'm sorry. I just wanted to respond directly to what you were saying, Hamilton, because I totally or daily, because I totally agree. It felt like, uh, I think this was actually an era where people were really into like, or, or starting to get really into user testing. Like you- Would hear, I'm not sure if this is exactly that period, but people talking about Pixar, for example, designing their whole building to be the kind of place where, like, everyone would meet organically and all the rest of it. And it's like they took the McLaren Technology Center and we're like, what if we made it the opposite of that? What if we made everything as inconvenient as was humanly possible and workers have to do, like, an hour of work at the beginning of the day to get ready for working tidily and then, like, another hour at the end of the day? Like, they're wasting all this time. And to me, it speaks to, like maybe something that was papered over with tobacco money, but it actually speaks to potentially a larger problem. Like, like you say, oh, there's like the space age cars and then this, but it, I wonder if there was a degree to which like, there was a lot of this. There was a lot of like no user testing, no actual like consulting <laughs> of the people using the space and just sort of like, well, this is what will look cool. This is what will... Be cool, and the result is like chaos. <laughs> you, you know
1: what the funny thing is is when when I was reading this. Uh, sorry, Hammy, you can jump in after this. It's it's kind of just a funny kind of uh, reference, and maybe it's you know fairly appropriate considering that birds you know joining us from New York. Every time, like, I saw or like read one of these funny stories of one of these brilliant ideas that didn't quite work out. And I'm going to date myself here, uh, unfortunately, but it reminded me of that old Seinfeld episode when George Costanza convinced Steinbrenner to put the Yankees in cotton uniforms. Yes, and the uniforms yes. got wet and they shrank and they couldn't <laughs> run and it became like a total disaster. And that was the thing, like, uh, w- w- when I was reading about like those overalls of the water cooled suit, their liquid cooled suits or whatever they were and all these. Innovations. I kept going back to like Costanza and like the cotton (laughs) uniforms because, you know, they breathe and, you know, all all this stuff. But, Hammy, jump in. I know you wanted to say something.
0: I, I think one of my biggest takeaways, and I love this line of conversation with respect to this book, was everything to Ron Dennis was a marketing vehicle right? Like the team may have been called McLaren, but it was ultimately going to reflect the brands of whoever wanted to cut him a check. And ultimately winning was important because that helps attract sponsors, but everything else was building up the brand and making it attractive to bring in tobacco money and sponsorship money. So ultimately, you know, those racing suits, well, it really didn't matter how they felt to the mechanics. It was more about how did they show up on TV and how did they show up in photographs? And likewise with Mm -hmm. the the mclaren technology center in surrey it was less about form and function as it was what's going to look really great to the media what's going to look great to fans and what is going to look great to sponsors when we fly them in and we whine and dine and try to extract revenue out of them and and mm-hmm. i think that was a big takeaway for me was that a lot of the the decision making was kind of made in isolation of common sense, which both of you just described. But I thought that was, I thought that was really, really interesting. And again, all of this ultimately, though, was only possible going back to that point that Bird made earlier, because of this huge infusion of tobacco money, that none of this would be possible today because of A, the cost cap, but also because that tobacco money has long since been forced out of the sport. But yeah, fascinating.
2: And it's why it's I think part of what I liked about this book so much was this feeling of like, there is like, let's peel back the curtain. Like we have this Wizard of Oz and then behind the Wizard of Oz are like mechanics literally kneeling on zippers <laughs> and getting tangled up in like coolant charging tubes i didn't even like understand what they were getting tangled up in um and i i I guess i I appreciated it for not there there are a lot of books out there that i think sort of continue to build up that that illusion of formula one is this like infallible like incredible thing and it is you know that it is in some ways like space age and incredible but it's also human beings sometimes making and Bert, on, <laughs> on that choices.
0: point, and I know we're probably going to get into this a little bit later, but if this book was written by um, our friend Martin Whitmarsh, or if it was written by Ron Dennis, and they were talking about McLaren culture, they would be telling one story. And some of it would overlap with what um, Priestley mm-hmm. writes, but... Within the McLaren culture, there's also subcultures within the teams, right? Like you hear at the mechanics talking about, like, well, McLaren would never approve this. And he, a lot of the times that he talks about being dragged in front of HR to be potentially fired or disciplined <laughs> is because of stuff they're doing outside of the McLaren culture. But there's these subcultures, and they're talking about some really ugly, super inappropriate hazing incidents that would never. Oh, yeah. Today.
2: Yeah. 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 So I mean, Mark or Daly, if you want to tackle some of that, because that was the other thing that I was, I'm I'm shocked he was so open about some of this stuff.
1: Yeah, I was shocked, but I I, like I kind of appreciated too, like like the 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 sort of hedonistic sort of you know party like there's no tomorrow or party like it's 1999 because it literally was, Uh, you know, I I kind of expected that, and it kind of wore like it wore on me over time because like I was living in Europe, I'm a similar age to to Elvis, so you know. I like when I was there, like I just remember it was always like it was just a party culture at that time. I don't know what it's like now, but it was always big, extravagant parties. We were out all the time, you know, and, and doing things like that. So I can only imagine in like uh, being in the world that he was in, where there, you know, there's like literally no money. He just talks about these ridiculous parties. Like what Red Bull had like the soccer stadium in Brazil with like this 360 degree, like, um, you know, projector that they had. And just like this off the walls, just like, just crazy like party atmosphere so I kind of like you know expected that and then he talks about being a limo full of drugs and alcohol and then I oh, mean geez. most of his stories just like talk about like you know like it's just like you know partying all night and going back to the hotel for an hour or two sleep and then you drag your back yourself back to the circuit and you know you're still kind of crazy that that kind of wore on me a little bit because it, it reminded me a lot about like myself and my friend circle back in the day and just about like the stupid things we were kind of like bragging about but I kind of understood it too and you know like the the egos is as well like i kind of understand that as well but like i can i can live with that because i kind of lived that to a much smaller scale like that party lifestyle but it was it was something like the hazing stuff i i really didn't like 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 they were talking about like the you know like when somebody would like leave mclaren like i mean it was just like really nasty like the stuff they were doing like they were talking about like one guy that like they basically stripped them he they tied him to like a tire dolly and they wheeled him around in the paddock like completely naked. And there's like a bunch of nasty stuff that, you know, I'm pretty sure like, you know, would result in criminal charges in this day and age. And I'm not going to repeat it here because it's, it's pretty nasty. And like, even like Michael Schumacher had to like, you know, go complain about, I think he called them the savages at McLaren. And there's lots of stuff. I mean, I love a good prank and there was plenty of good stories about good pranks, but there was a lot of like, you know, very frank and honest, uh, you know, recollections of stuff that was clearly over the line. And I, I think that just kind of like reading or hearing the tone, you could kind of tell that some of it, he was either because I don't think he was involved in some of like the extreme stuff, but I, I don't think he he didn't really approve of it either. Maybe
2: maybe that's just me. Well, I thought, again, in in the same way that it felt like a a pretty a somewhat clear eyed um, portrait of how inefficient some things were at McLaren, though he does. He is sort of like, but Ron Dennis was great. But in this section or in, in the parts where he's describing uh, some of the stuff that they got up to. He slips in between kind of being like, oh, the good old days. Uh, and also seemingly being a little regretful. But but mm-hmm. I have like I even found uh some of some of the yes, the hazing was horrifying, but also he has a description of a time when they're all unbelievably drunk and they just like strip out the inside of a hire car. Like they just trash
1: yeah, it yeah, yeah. and
2: then they're, they like give it back to the hire car company and they only charge them for sort of a, a wing mirror. And it felt at least in, in that section, like he acknowledged essentially that they were, working insane hours they weren't sleeping they were sort of letting far too loose almost uh afterwards and again it did it did paint a picture of like it's it it was gross. It was a little gross, um, and I think being that honest about how how gross things were mm-hmm. uh, is is useful. I guess to have on on the record and not on the record and sort of like oh how yeah. fun that all was.
1: <laughs> yeah. As unpleasant as I found like that whole kind of trashing like the the minivan story was, what what I also found like equally disappointing was how he called David Coulthard, who was one of the drivers at the time, told him the story. He basically you know rubs into laughter, thinks it's like the funniest thing that uh, that he heard, and he's just like, well, if you guys need the money, then just let me know, and I'll you know kinda I'll I'll give you the money kind of thing to do it. So I I was a little bit kind of. I guess I wasn't surprised, but I was a little bit kind of disappointed to hear, but you know, it kind of, and not to excuse like the behavior because, you know, it was obviously, you know, inexcusable what they did, but like you say, I mean, they're working insane hours. They're away from home, the pressure that they're under to deliver. And then, you know, they're, they're living like this kind of like parallel life, you know, party lifestyle. And at some point something's got to break. And obviously it did in that, you know, in that, uh, in that situation, you kind of almost get like this, you know like this group kind of like rage or they they just all completely lost it at the at the same time just all this you know this pent up you know stress and energy and everything just you know manifested in this really really terrible way
0: it it is funny though that that he describes how much Macro control. Ron Dennis wanted over the entire project from the design of the factory to the tiles to the order of the, the the tools in the toolbox. And yet, at the same time, and this is what I was kind of talking about. There's this culture within these the subcultures where the mechanics, meanwhile, are are acting in a completely. Opposite way, and and it was in such in such stark contrast to what Ron thought was happening, and and I think that's why he always assumed the worst when he was constantly being disciplined. Like, okay, <laughs> this will be the time, and then that last time he he kind of walked around knowing, and the prank was when he died Kimi Räikkönen's hands during a Grand <laughs> Prix, not even knowing whether that would have an impact on his ability to drive a car. He gets a final written warning. So it's funny that Ron's got this project; he's got super tight control over every imaginable element of it yet people within this organization are acting in really destructive ways destructive to the mm-hmm. physical world around them but also to themselves because daily you make a great point about the fact that this was pre curfew so for everyone that's new to formula 1 mechanics operate under a strict curfew to protect one it's a cost play but two it's a competitive balance play but three it's also to protect the well-being of the mechanics There was no such thing. These mechanics could work twenty four hours straight, sleep two hours, and work twenty four hours straight. But what he was describing was they would work those long days, wouldn't go back to the hotel and sleep. They'd go and party, grab an hour of sleep, and then go straight back to working on the machines that were going to jettison their drivers around a track at (laughs) twenty kilometers an hour.
1: It's it's insane. It literally is insane.
2: One final thing that sort of struck me from. That this sort of section, maybe before we move on that i I think it it fits with with all that we're saying, but because you mentioned that the the prank, I think the thing that he treats it very flippantly, but it it was sort of the most um, disturbing yeah. to me in some ways was uh, in the build up to this prank. Uh, he he has this like get out of jail free card and mm-hmm. sort of rewind to how he got the get out of jail free card. um he at one point had gone to a hairdresser and gotten dreadlocks put into his hair, which uh you know there's a whole history uh that that there are lots of really great resources on the internet to read about sort of uh white people appropriating uh Black hairstyles like dreadlocks, but um, so that's sort of a, a different <laughs> box. But he he gets this this hairstyle and then he goes to work with like a hat over his head. And Ron Dennis, as as he recalls it, he sort of notices Ron Dennis noticing potentially his hair, and then he's asked by uh, higher up at McLaren essentially to like get rid of This hairstyle and they clearly know they know this is a problem because they then like Martin Whitmarsh who we've mentioned before who's another higher up at McLaren comes to him and says you know if you ever need anything like thank you so much for adhering to our standards um and and he 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 knows (laughs) that or or I think the way that he phrases it is like they probably knew that there was like an HR problem in them asking him to do this. But I think that that story to me reveals just something so ugly about the the state of Formula One at that time and like sort of the roots of a lot of the problems that still exist in the in the sport today around diversity and, uh, you know, whether that's racial diversity or gender diversity, et cetera. Like if, if someone like Ron Dennis, I know that he brought Lewis into the sport, et cetera, but if he was so bent on people looking a certain way, adhering to a certain look like that's, there's something really dark there that I think is still playing out in the sport.
1: Yeah, 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 definitely I can see that as well and it just sort of like a it's a sort of a broader observation though. It, it's interesting when you kind of see all these things and you kind of think, well Elvis he was only a mechanic and I don't want to diminish his role because I mean if you're a Formula 1 mechanic, I mean you're a very qualified and a very, you know, a very capable person but it's just interesting that even though he was just a mechanic, just how much he sort of picked up on and how much he observed. And, and of course, that's going to happen because when you're in close confines with the same group of people for you know days and weeks and months and years at a time, I mean... There's not going to be a lot of things that are going to be kept secret. I mean, you're going to you know basically see a lot of things, and that's why I think, Bert, it was interesting earlier when you said you know had this been book had been written by say Ron Dennis or Martin Whitmarsh, it would be interesting to almost get that you know that contrast, right? Because. They would probably recount a lot of these same incidents in a completely different perspective, which uh, you know I find kind of uh, kind of interesting. But yeah, the whole dreadlocks story that w- that was an interesting one, and then how yeah, he kind of parlayed that later on, years later, to the. And it was almost like a badge badge of honor that, you know, if you got like your final written warning at McLaren, I think uh, one of the, uh, you know, the one of the senior people said, oh, Elvis, don't worry about it. Everybody who's, you know, ever done anything or been important to the team, everybody who is someone who's got a final written warning at some point, it was almost like, you know, if you're one of the boys, you know, you should have one of these, uh, you know, in, in your personnel file,
0: right? Just on that that note as the, well. The other
2: thing was Hamilton's insight also just. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> not mine, but uh, yeah. but sorry, keep going.
0: No, no, I, I was just going to say the, the other thought, too. And and I'm just going to pick up with what you were saying daily about it being a boys club. We talk about the lack of the lack of diversity and the lack of people of color and the lack of women in Formula One today in 2022. As you read through this book, he recounts interactions with dozens or hundreds of people within the world of Formula One. None of them are women. And and that's really just a reflection of where the sport was at that point. And it was daily, exactly as you described, it was a boys club like by and large it was a boys club they work together they party together there were no people of color and really hamilton broke that color barrier in 2007 when he joined the team and they get into that uncomfortable conversation about hey the drivers none of the mechanics want to work with hamilton and they 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 allude to the fact that hey it's because obviously he was a rookie etc but it's also just deeply unsettling that nobody was excited to work with this young super talented driver that just won the gp2 championship yeah it was it's a good it's a good portrait of a very different world of Formula 1, but also just reinforces the fact that the world of Formula 1 today is still truly problematic in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny because, you know, unless he was talking about maybe like his wife or stories like that, I mean, the only time I ever read... Or Kimmy's mom, you know, exactly. the only Or time, grid
2: girls. I, yeah, grid well, girls. Well, yeah, that's,
1: yep. that's exactly where I was going to take it. It's the only other time that he talks about, like, females in relation to Formula One is how, like, mechanics were basically were expected to go out and recruit, you know, attractive women to be grid girls. And then the only other time that I remember him, like, specifically talking about any, like, a female having a role within the team is later in the book when he's talking about like the time when uh, Lewis was in a relationship with uh, Nicole Scherzinger from the Pussycat Dolls. He was just like, oh yeah, she was with someone like the what he called the marketing girls from from the team. Actually, right? daily, no, and no, just, no.
0: Take it yep. back another step. There was another example, and this also just oh, reinforces. was there. Okay. it just re- I just yep. thought of it right now. It reinforces that boys' club. He gets pulled into the meeting. With the head yep. of HR for that meeting, that final disciplinary meeting where he gets that yep. final written yep. warning, there is a woman in the meeting room from HR. As soon as she leaves, his entire posture changes. He's like, yeah, don't even worry about it. All of us have got a final written warning. It's just part of the thing. Like, You're right. Yeah. So yeah, which yeah. doesn't, which Great certainly doesn't help the cause at all. No. And
2: just for context, the final written warning is not about the hair. The final written warning is about like the, the fact that he, dyed Kimmy's hands blue for the final race Um, (laughs) of of Kimmy's like career at McLaren. Uh, but, but yes, uh, I, I definitely, um, it's funny, uh, Hamilton, I had not super picked up on that, but yeah, it is, it's the, the HR woman leaves the room and her points are immediately undermined. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Yeah, just to, as we wrap this segment up and then we'll go on, we're going to talk about Spygate next after the break. Uh, you know, just to one other thing I wanted to, to to mention was just like on the whole dying Kimmy's hands, like you know, blue like a Smurf. It was how you could almost in that whole recollection is you can almost picture the devil and the angel, like little mini uh, angel Elvis and devil Elvis on his shoulder. Because the way that he recollects it, he had like... how can I not do this? I know I shouldn't, but I have to, I have to get Kimmy because he's leaving and all these things. And he's like, I know if I do this, I'm going to get in terrible trouble, but you know, I shouldn't do it, but oh, you know, what the hell I'm going to do it. But anyways, okay, well that was some great discussion guys. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about Spygate because this was uh, another like just completely bonkers story. We'll do that in just a, a moment. So don't go away. We'll be back after a short break for a message from our sponsors.
0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
1: All right, welcome back to the show. Mark Daly, Mark Hamilton, and Bird Pinkerton, the F1 book nerds. We're talking about The Mechanic <laughs> by Mark Elvis Priestley. Uh, we just, in the previous segment, we spent a lot of time talking about the, the early two thousand the noughties. And that era at McLaren, and they were the naughty naughties if, uh, with a lot of the uh, extracurricular activities that they got up to. But that's not just related to the the party lifestyle. There was a little wee thing called Spygate. And if you've been around Formula One and been following the sport for a while, this is one of those watershed moments that really stands out just in the audacity of it. And then also eventually how it's discovered and then you know the penalty that is you know like levied on McLaren and i, I still can't help but wonder if that that outcome that that punishment still has the, the repercussion the echoes from that still have some some impact on the team today i mean it was it was a so, massive massive fine yeah
2: Go ahead, some, Bird. it's like i like if, if you were to summarize Spygate... Let me summarize this one. I've
0: been I, I've been yes. waiting my whole life for this moment. And it's also funny because <laughs> one of the first times that I ever talked to you, Bird, to you bird I sent you a, a story from Wired from May 19th, 2008. And it's a really good article about Spygate. So let me back this up because the book does a really good job of talking about how it unfolded from the insider's perspective. But at a very high level, here's what happened. So from the early 2000s until 2007, six, Ferrari was a powerhouse in Formula One. They won a bunch of championships. Michael Schumacher was on top of the world, and the whole organization was being overseen by Ross Braun. At the end of 2006, Ross Braun left Ferrari. He went on a sabbatical, and Michael Schumacher retired. And There was another individual who was considered part of the the big three at Ferrari called Nigel Stepney. And He had hoped that in the absence of Ross Braun and all the changes within the organization that he was going to become the technical director. However, he wasn't an engineer and this didn't happen. So he was very, very upset. In fact, in February, 2007, he said a quote to Autosport that I read, I'm looking at spending a year away from Ferrari. I'm not at the moment happy with the team. A few months later, he was still with the team. He'd taken up a full-time role at the factory. So he wasn't traveling with the team. He was caught putting white powder into a fueling tank that was getting a car ready to go to Monaco. So he was caught by the police. He was taken down to the police station. They searched him. They found powder on his body. They searched his house. They found powder there. Now, while this was going on, he was also in close contact with a friend who worked with previously at Ferrari named Michael Coughlin. And Michael Coughlin was one of the designers at McLaren. And as he grew increasingly disenchanted with Ferrari, he began sharing more and more information with Michael Coughlin giving him some technical, dir- um, dir- uh, some technical um, drawings, some information about their current car. He'd also shared with them that he believed that the floor of the current Ferrari was illegal. Michael Coughlin had shared that with somebody else on the team at McLaren, didn't say where he got it from. That information found its way to the FIA and the FIA investigated, found out that, hey, it's not within the code, but we're not going to punish Ferrari. Um, it also became well known within the organization that he may have had a conversation or been having ongoing conversations Conversations with uh, Nigel Stepney. So his boss pulled him aside and said, Look, this relationship has to end. You need to see him in person and sever all communications with him. It has to stop. So he got on a flight and he flew to Europe and he met with his good friend Nigel Stepney. And instead of terminating the relationship, he took from him 780 pages of technical diagrams and instructions on the current Ferrari car, the 2007 Ferrari car. He brought them home, gave them to his wife and said, I need you to go down to a local copy shop, have them scan them, load them onto CD, and then I need you to destroy, destroy the physical copies. So she did exactly that. Unfortunately for her, the owner of the local copy shop was a diehard Ferrari fan who immediately emailed Stefano Domenicali, who then forwarded it to their securities team. So the whole issue Blew up. Now it went to the FIA, it all came out. Stepney was fired, Um, Coughlin was fired. But uh, the FIA investigated and they ultimately determined that hey, good news is this the information that Ferrari provided didn't go any farther than Coughlin. So in July, There was a a hearing from the FIA and they said, look, no punishment because the information didn't go farther than this one person. Now, where it gets interesting, and this kind of intertwines with another segment that we're going to do, the information Mm -hmm. did come out. And I'm not going to share how yet. The information did come out that they were widely shared within the organization, that the drivers knew about it, the drivers were sharing data, the engineers were sharing data, mechanics were sharing data. So ultimately in September, there was another hearing and it was thought at the time that Max Mosley, who hated Ron Dennis, that they thought McLaren was going to be banned from the championship permanently. That didn't ultimately happen. They were stripped of all of their constructors' points for the entire season, meaning they lost out on all of the prize money, and they were fined a remarkable $100 million. Bird, I'll pass it over to
2: you. Well- Yeah. So this, first of all, I feel like Hamilton, you should just write your own book (laughs) (laughs) detailing scandals. Um, but also, you know, I had, you had sent me this article. I enjoyed this article very much. Um, when I read it, but what I, what I enjoyed about this book was again, getting that, like, what I described before that feeling of like, I have a mortgage, like what's going to happen to the team. Um, He gives you that feeling of, of not necessarily here's juicy insider stuff about what we knew. Cause he just keeps on being like, we didn't know anything. <laughs> like we were mechanics. Um, But he does, he brings you in and lets you know how it felt to have around you. Just this ever Hanging cloud and and he he brings you into the moment when they find out the result of mm-hmm. the
0: that was trial. Maybe and the best again, part of the book. he's like that was brilliant. Out yeah, yeah.
2: All these hypotheticals of like they think they're going to lose their job. They think they're going to like all of them are going to lose their job at the same time. And like, how will they get absorbed into other teams? Probably not. He's talking about how he doesn't have like his skills are not really transferable outside of formula one. Like he just paints you this emotional picture of like, if this goes South and McLaren goes South, which felt like a very real possibility to them. Like he is up a Creek without a DRS or whatever, (laughs) without a paddle, like he's, he's doomed. Um, And then, and you're, yeah, you're sitting there, uh, and like, again, one of these like head haunt, all the mechanics are sitting there, like one of these head honchos is sort of keeps on like picking up the phone to hear a result and it's it's not the result. And they're all like frantically refreshing Autosport and, and other like motorsports magazines to to see what happens. And it again, it's not like it was the kind of thing where he had some bombshell allegation to drop. It just really brought you into that like, Sink and pit of your stomach feeling. That's (laughs) one like
1: that. That's one of the part like Mark said that it was probably the best part of the book, and it was because the way that he described it that that situation when they were at the Belgian Grand Prix at Spa Frankochem, it was so vivid. I I could literally picture myself there, like in the pits. And then he talks about how they all pack up, they leave the circuit and then they get a phone call from Dave Ryan who's the team manager telling them to all come back to the circuit to the garage because Ron's you know said you know the decision's coming down soon he wants everybody there to hear it at the same time so they basically turn these 3 buses or these 3 minivans around they go back to the circuit. And then you mentioned it so nicely, or described it so nice, Bird, just the way that every time Dave got a phone call, like everybody, like, like, so their heads go away from their their phones. And he'd be like, he'd be wagging his finger, shaking his head. Yeah, he, uh, no, it's not Ron. It'd be like, somebody's calling. He's like, yeah, yeah, no news yet. And then finally they get the call. And then it was, it was just an extremely vividly painted picture. And I thought it was like really one, wonder- it was really well done. And again, like that, that, uh- you know, all the anxiety and the stress that he's going through and you stole the phrase or the the specifically the, the, like when he says that he didn't have any skills that were transferable away from formula one, he's just like, you know, if we get booted out of formula one and I don't get a job with another team, I'm basically screwed. And uh, it it was hard, you know, it's, You know, and sometimes like I found you know, I found myself kind of like loving him and being annoyed with him, like depending on what kind of stories he was related. At that point in like the whole Elvis with McLaren. Uh, era at McLaren, I felt a lot of empathy with him, you know, because, you know, I I don't know about everybody else, but, you know, I've been in situations when, you know, like the company I've been working for is like, there's rumored like downsizing and stuff like that. You know, you feel like that stress, you know, oh crap, am I going to have a job next Monday or, or whatever it is? And so I I could empathize uh, with him there, but it was crazy too. And then he also relates this other story. This was actually before the whole chapter on Spygate. Uh, when apparently there there was some point afterwards where Max Mosley, you know, encounters Ron Dennis and said something about like the whole hundred million dollar fine. He said, he sort of whispered into Ron's ear something to, I can't remember the exact uh, quote, which I think he was all here he not Say the exact. <laughs>
2: quote I'm not anyway. going to say the exact
1: quote because you know we were talking about inappropriate right, things, right. but. He apparently sort of leaned over to Ron and whispered in his ear. He said the, the hundred million dollars fine was broken down into two parts. 1 million was for the infraction and 99 million was for being a bleep. And, uh, you know, that was just sort of the, I guess the level of dislike that, that Mosley had for, for Ron Dennis, you know, I, supposedly. I just but, want to uh, reinforce something because yeah. I
0: think bird makes a really good point that I look at this through the lenses of it just being a really entertaining spectacle, but for bird, Bird, you're right. Like there were a thousand people working for this team, and if you flash back yeah. to 2007, it was widely speculated that McLaren was going to be permanently banned from F1. It wasn't going to be a fine. It wasn't going to be losing constructors points. It was going to be done, and nobody knew. So in that moment that you both describe, they're sitting there waiting to find out if they're going to have jobs. Because if the if the ruling came down differently, they may have packed up at the garage and just gone home forever, and the team would have been liquidated and gone.
2: Well, so this is something that I am really, like, this is part of why I wanted to ask you this as a new fan. You know, I look back on it and I'm like, well, clearly McLaren was fine. Um, But what, when you all were watching uh, all of this, like, what, what did all this feel like sort of from the outside? How much information did everyone have, like cast yourselves back to 2007 it's, it's and a fair it, tell it was
0: surreal that. yeah No, and I was just going to, I was going to add like, um, one, I agree with daily. It was surreal, but the way that we ingested the news was very differently because it was pre-social media. So there's no Instagram, there was no Twitter, there was no discord. Uh, we principally got our message or our information from messaging boards, which were wholly unreliable and largely speculative or news sites. And, and obviously all of the news sites had different agendas and different sources. So we only learned about things at a very high level and we weren't getting the information piecemeal as it kind of leaked dripped out bit by bit by bit but it was it was absolutely surreal and and i think my expectation was that they were going to be extracted from the championship and possibly banned from the sport and it was during an era where f1 was struggling because obviously michael schumacher had been dominating for a long time and you know while we look Mm -hmm. back on that romantically like hey there's this all-time great winning these championships people were very much turned off from formula 1 because of that we we hear a lot about people saying hey you know what hamilton was winning too much the sport wasn't competitive Formula One had the same problem with Schumacher, so it was in this period, and then Schumacher retires, which isn't necessarily a great thing either because there's no hair apparent, and then all of a sudden, 2007 starts, and you've got this wild championship battle, so at the beginning of 2007, all I remember is the excitement that Hamilton bursts on the scene, he's winning races, contending for a championship, Alonso's there expecting to be the number one driver, so there's this wild narrative. Meanwhile, Ferrari, both Felipe Massa and Kimi Raikkonen are hyper-competitive, and then all All of a sudden, come June, it all just crumbles. All of it crumbles, both the driver piece, which we'll talk about in a minute, but also the perception Mm -hmm. of this finely honed image that Ron Dennis had spent decades crafting, this polished, spit-polished, finely manicured McLaren project, and all of a sudden, the perception of it just shatters, just shatters and never recovers. And the other thing that the book doesn't really get into, and sorry, I'm going to ramble for two more seconds, but the other thing that the book really doesn't get into is Mercedes during this era was, or sorry, McLaren during this era was a Mercedes works team. Let's be very clear about this. Mercedes was supplying yep, they were. to one team. They were funding half of the project. And even before Spygate, they were deeply unhappy with their role. They were paying half of all of the bills. They had very little input into the design of the car, and they had zero input into driver selection. So they were already very unhappy. And then when this happened... McLaren Mercedes, their name gets dragged through the mud, even though they were documented as having no involvement. And furthermore, Mercedes paid half of that fine. So this Spygate was also the end of the relationship between those two teams, and it's ultimately what spurred Mercedes on to buy Braun in two thousand nine.
1: Mm-hmm. And then it also probably sowed the the initial seeds for Ron Dennis's eventual Absolutely. removal Absolutely. and an exit from. From McLaren, because when I go back and read this whole, you know, get this insider scoop from somebody that was there and witnessed and lived it, uh, you know, up close and personal, like Elvis did, you know, it, it really is. It it's almost comical the way like the whole thing unraveled. I mean, I mean, as uh, as audacious and as criminal as it was, the way that you know Stepney was feeding this this information to Coughlin out of malice, this this hatred and this you know this you know, revenge, you know, that he wants to levy against a Ferrari, it's just, it's incredible because, you know, I have this really insensitive and inappropriate, you know, stereotype in my mind of this little Italian guy in this copy shop that, you know, and, and in 2009, it's not like it is now where we literally, I mean, we had a lot of information in 2009, but now it's crazy how much information we have at our fingertips, but how in 2009 does this guy have like a, like a direct line basically to Stefano DiMicali at Marinello? He I doesn't. Like,
2: I think that they had to like submit on some website. We don't, that's I, like a whole other, uh, he, he like I, okay. someone contacted their just like helpline and it's, oh,
1: okay. My okay. Imp- this is, yeah. this is
2: my understanding. Take that with, you know, I don't okay. know anything. So then but they, I, yeah, I think it yeah. was just sort of like a, uh, totally, Thank gosh, someone was was going to the like info yeah, at, at Ferrari.com Ferrari. <laughs> um, or or IT uh, and checking that that email inbox. But it is when you when you say this stuff about like the pettiness of it all, I think there's sort of like a, a larger pettiness happening that that uh, Hamilton has has alluded to that also uh, was interesting to to read through in this book.
1: Yeah, and it just goes to emphasize just how how incredible it is. Like the the poor decisions by literally a handful of of people could have unraveled the entire thing. I mean, I still find it a little bit and, and as much as I'm I admit that I, I, I love the work that Zach Brown has done at McLaren to revive them over the past several years, to me, for somebody that's been watching Formula One since I was a kid and you know I'm middle aged now. I find it weird not to see Ron Dennis on the pit wall or in the garage or when there's an interview that it's not Ron Dennis. It just, as much love as I have for Zach, it just... um I just can't quite reconcile the the the, the two, so it was uh, an amazing amazing thing. But let's now take another uh, break because uh, Bird, you used another great word, pettiness, and we're going to talk about pettiness to the extreme, and we're going to do that in a moment when we talk about the extremely fragile and petty relationship between Fernando Alonso and Lewis Hamilton. We'll do that in just a moment, so don't go away. all right welcome back and we are now moving into the final segment uh, discussing the mechanic by mark elvis Priestley, former mclaren formula one mechanic and one other thing that i just want to 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 mention the one thing that really hooked me to wanting to read this story more was the cover how badass is that cover with the it's basically from you know i it's it's obviously got to be elvis you know, why else would it be anyone else? But you just can't tell it's him because it's basically shoulders up. He's in the pit lane. He's got his overalls on. I wonder if these are the, uh, you know, the, uh, the the cotton Yankee uniform equivalent McLaren mechanics overalls, but it's got he's got like that cool chromed helmet that the McLaren uh, mechanics wore back in the day, you know the chrome mirrored goggles. It just uh, it looks super super cool. I mean, we were talking earlier about how like uh, ron Dennis did everything with a purpose and how there's like the brand and everything. That just you know that's just such a cool cool picture. Anyways, this is going to be a fun segment because this is something that's kind of perpetuated through the years. And obviously, last year in 2021, the situation between Max and Max Verstappen, that is, and Lewis Hamilton kind of got a little bit heated at times on the track. But that was in terms of competitiveness and, you know, crossing the lines and some obviously some... Very favorable calls going a certain Dutch driver's way, which we don't need to to get into. That's a little bit beyond the discussion that we're, we're having right now. But Lewis, at this time, he's just breaking into the sport. Fernando is has been in the sport for about several years now he's fresh off of two world championships in 05 and 06 with uh, with Renault. he goes over to mclaren which i'm assuming is just after he probably burnt the bridges at Renault the first <laughs> yep. time and you know the the burning bridges yep. is you know kind of a common theme in fernando's career so he ends up at mclaren and then you know you get he, he's partnered up with uh, lewis hamilton and you have this kind of like Cinderella story because Lewis has kind of come up through the system. He's been like a McLaren driver, and there's this you know this wonderful story about when Lewis was a kid, he met uh, Ron McLaren at an event and told him one day he was going to drive his Formula One cars. And then you know fast forward several years later, you know after he's he's come up through the junior Formula and GP two, he becomes a McLaren driver. And it was kind of interesting, too, the way that Elvis recounts how Elvis or sorry, um Elvis obviously was with the team and he had been for for many years at this point kind of working up through the test team and to the T car and then on to the race car and whatnot. Just a, almost a little bit of like skepticism that they had around Lewis. That um, you know, that and it's a very kind of like similar story we've heard in recent years when they when Ferrari signed Charles Leclerc because it's like we don't need to develop drivers. We're McLaren, we've got the money, we can just go and get the best driver that we want. We don't need to develop guys. And Lewis had kind of caught everybody's attention, you know, the year before with some of the you know, the crazy things and how fast he was in GP two and the amazing things that he was doing there. But there still was like a little bit of skepticism. It was like, you know, who's this guy? He's this young kid? He's unproven. you know, wh- why should he be here and and that sort of thing. And you know, in fairly short order, he endears himself to the team because they go on like this preseason trip to Finland, I believe it was. And Lewis, You can tell, like, I mean, there isn't really, I don't think anything like the inappropriate sort of shenanigans that, you know, like Priestley, like recounts earlier, but but Lewis, he gets in, he sort of like bonds with people and then it doesn't take too long before, you know, he sort of, He's he's bonded with them, and he's you know he's sort of making getting some footholds within the team, and then you know when they're working on the car, you know he's very curious, he's making suggestions, and he's very engaged with that whole process. So slowly but surely, he starts to 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 really you know endear himself to the team. But it's it's interesting as like the season goes on, and how quickly Lewis establishes himself like on the track and how quickly he kind of, you know, he's getting better results than Fernando in races and in qualifying. And Fernando, pardon my French, he's getting pissed off about this because he's, you know, double world champion. He's at his apex. He's just like, you know, there should not be any question about this. And then there's like some of like this really petty stuff. And, you know, like bird used the, the you know, pettiness. And that's the perfect word because I think it was, it was it at the Hungarian Grand Prix that year like they had this order of who would go out onto the track first. And then Lewis goes out to the end of the pit lane first. He wouldn't move over Fernando and it kind of ruins his hot lap. And then, you know, Fernando comes back into the, uh, to the, to the pits and they get to go out for one final hot lap and then fernando blocks the uh, like the pit lane just long enough so he can get around at the end of q3 he puts in his in his flying lap he gets pole and then lewis he just comes around and like fernando just makes it over the start finish line with like a second or two to spare to, before like the session closes but his time will still count and then lewis doesn't so at that point i think that was like a real you know one of those real benchmark moments it was just like okay you know, you, you gloves are coming off and it just kind of went south from there. Like, what did you guys like make about that? Because that, for me, that was one incident in many of these kind of like escalating, upping the ante kind of like incidents.
2: Well, again, this this story, right? Like, I think everyone watched uh, that, that happen and sort of watched that unfold. They were watching, you know, Lewis first sort of being on the podium behind Fernando and then ahead of Fernando. And, and we're watching the, the drama that season. So I think again, maybe what, what I found so compelling about this book or this narrative was, was how much it showed, like how fickle, (laughs) I guess the mechanics could be like he he has all these sort of descriptions of you know Lewis was humble at the beginning and then mm-hmm. we all felt like maybe he was faking it uh, when he was thinking the team later like was he playing a political game and like f- like Fernando seems to have burned a million bridges among his mechanics by just like being paranoid and not trusting the team and and I took away from that not you know, oh Lewis was humble and then became not <laughs> humble or something. But more yeah. so how like how quickly these mechanic or how these mechanics sort of do form these impressions of these drivers. And he it, it's clear that this guy really liked Kimmy throughout and oh yeah. Yeah. Had much more distance, I think, from from both Lewis and Alonzo. And and so that insight, like the drama is fantastic and like watching the 2007 season I think is is a trip but that that feeling of like the the shifting winds within the team and how the team sort of yeah. sours is is almost cool. as or more compelling to me
1: Just for a little bit of context, I'll read a passage here out of Elvis's book, and this is from the the Spygate chapter, chapter 17, when he says, quote, Lewis was very deliberate in praising the team at every opportunity. He detailed what a wonderful job they had been doing all year and how proud he was of everybody. Fernando, of course, did not. This almost devious, under-the-radar sniping was a tactic Lewis would frequently use that year, mostly behind the scenes within our team, and it wasn't a trait that many people warmed to. In the garage, a lot of the lads became suspicious. Lewis's platitudes towards us were beginning to be treated with mistrust, and the stuff he was saying in interviews and press conferences was taken with a dubious pinch of salt. We could see that he had another agenda motivated by his feud with Fernando. I felt as if he was using us at that point to wind up Fernando and his side of the garage and to drum up support amongst the fans for his own uh, cause, end quotes. I I think that sums it up perfectly. (laughs)
2: And so that, like, that to me doesn't necessarily say, like, that's what Lewis was actually doing or, or not doing, but the, it just, it reveals so much about, like, a perception within a team that's sort of falling apart and no, like, the mechanics don't seem to like the either driver that much or at least this mechanic does it. Like, it just, it got to a sort of, like, a core of, of nastiness and mistrust amongst people that, I don't yeah. know. It was difficult or to, to
0: you, read. you make a really great point, right? That we all know what happened to that championship. We can go to Wikipedia and we can see that. Yeah. Lewis ran off nine straight podiums to start the season. And he finished one point behind Kimmy in the championship. And we know that he had a retirement in China. What we don't know was the inner dynamics. Like we saw the drama playing out between Alonzo and, and Lewis in every media availability, like they weren't hiding mm-hmm. this from anybody, but I think you make a really great point that what we see in the book and what he describes is a breakdown of the relationship between the mechanics and the drivers, but also the two sets of mechanics that the mechanics for Fernando, their, their relationship and the communication with Lewis's mechanics completely broke down. And that kind of started even before the season began because he describes how certain mechanics and one team of mechanics openly lobbying to be on Fernando's team. And then that happened. And then as the nastiness began between Lewis and Fernando, that trickled down to within the team. And it got to a point where ultimately it was, It was unsustainable. And obviously the championship ended, but you spring ahead, incidentally, you spring ahead nine years to 2016. We see a very similar situation play out with Nico and Lewis. And Mark, you always talk about the fact that Toto at one point basically said, Look, we can do this without both of you. And I don't know that Ron Dennis necessarily said that, although he does describe some really inflamed conversations between the driver and Ron Dennis. But yeah, mm-hmm. like it became toxic throughout the organization. It was just amazing to see those roots, the roots yeah. of negativity start to spread from the drivers down.
1: Well, this and this can, toxicity, pardon me, sorry, Brett, I just wanted to jump into your current hmm? really quickly because uh, the, some of this toxicity was fomented by Fernando himself, who like one day shows up in the garage and hands out these brown paper envelopes with like 1500 or 1300 euros in it to all of his, his you know, all his guys, his right? Guys. And then, you know, and the mechanics aren't supposed to accept gifts from the from from the drivers. So what ends up at the end of the day is they all these guys have to hand in these packets. And the way that Elvis describes it is that, uh, you know, Fernando made a very generous donation to you know very lucky charity. But I found that this part was very uh, fascinating because this is going back to an era where we had like a spare car, which they used to call the T car. So Elvis at this point he's not a mechanic for Fernando or Lewis he's the chief mechanic for the T car. So he basically has to have this car set up and ready to go for either one of these guys and they would kind of like set it up more for one guy or another guy based on which track it was and they would kind of have a suspicion well if anybody has an incident here it is likely either going to be driver A or driver B but Regardless, they have to be impartial. And the way he kind of like describes it is the T car was basically that buffer between, you know, both, you know, both sets of mechanics for uh, Fernando and Lewis and just like just how like nasty (laughs) it was. I'm just like, wow, it's just like like hearing these stories and there's so many like of these little stories that Elvis recounts in there. It's just like, you we could probably sit here for another hour and a half and go through every little incident. It was just it was astonishing.
2: But again, you know, he puts him, he, when he describes himself as being in that T car, he sort of is like, so I wasn't on either team, right? Like I'm more of an impartial person, but then as in that, in that quote, I think that quote that you read is, is fascinating because the, I like, I'm phrasing it as bias, not like everyone has their own like bias, right? Like their own perspective. And it's like the lens that that he is looking through is just one of toxicity like everything was so sour on that team that he doesn't like either driver seemingly by the end of it and he describes at the end he says they're
0: he's they're ashamed of the drivers
2: and at the end (laughs) he's like because kimmy has just left mclaren he's gone to ferrari and when Kimmy wins the championship he doesn't seem that upset (laughs) he's kind of like (laughs) well like I'm glad that that this driver that I do like won which is just sort of I mean again this is after they've weathered like the storm of Spygate and like all of this stuff but but to get to a point where you're the driver that like left your team you're not that upset that they kind of like came in and sniped the championship from both of your drivers. Like, that's a statement in itself of just how bad it got.
1: Well, I'm going to read another little uh, section here, another passage out of the book, and he talks about this. It says, uh, outside in the pit lane, the Ferrari team went wild. A mob of them were cheering and running towards the podium, despite the blood that had been spilled across our two garages. There were no bad feelings between the McLaren mechanics and our uh, counterparts in red. I'd become friendly with a few of the engineers working on Kimmy's car, and I was genuinely pleased for them. I was thrilled for Kimmy, too. I knew how much he wanted it, and it was a little choked that we hadn't achieved it together. Interestingly, Fernando had finished third, but very few people were heading to the podium to celebrate as we normally would. My conscience got the better of me, and I grabbed a few of the team and told them to come to the end of the pit lane. We had to show some support for our man. I knew it might be the last time that Fernando appeared in one of our cars. I felt we should gather together under the podium for one final time. It might, help the, uh, it might help prove to him how dedicated we'd been to his cause all along, end quote. Because there was a lot of suspicion, you know, Fernando, I think, had a lot of doubts and a lot of conspiracy theories that he wasn't uh, getting, like, the number one status or, you know, he wasn't getting the, you know, the... You know the you know the the equipment or the preferential treatment or equipment that uh, that he expected with his number one status as a double world champion, but you know there's another part of the discussion that we haven't talked to, and this is a direct tie back into. Uh, Spygate. And I'm going to let Hamilton talk about this because he did such an eloquent and such a good job summing up Spygate. Because initially, the reports are this information's gone no further than from Stepney to Coughlin to his wife to the coffee shop where it's intercepted and sent to info at Ferrari.it when then eventually it ends up at somebody (laughs) important's inbox and then it unravels from there. And then you know, the word within McLaren itself is it didn't go any further than that. Hammy, you take it up fr- from there because it, it did. It's 100%
0: it did. 100%. So it's pretty simple. Hungary was a flashpoint in the season. You did a great job of describing specifically what happened, which was Hamilton snipes uh, Fernando, gets on track, puts in that ultra fast pole time. And then Fernando comes in, blocks Hamilton. So Hamilton can't go in and put in a faster lap. Fernando goes out, puts in a faster lap, secures pole. So there's some pettiness. Once both of the drivers return to the garage, it's just screaming matches and screaming matches. The screaming matches continue to the following day, at which point Fernando makes a threat to Ron Dennis that not only was he very much aware of all of the information being shared within the team, but that he was a part of emails where said information was being shared and that he threatened to personally send that to the FIA. Uh, Ron Dennis in, in his uh, wisdom actually contacts Max Mosley directly and says, I think it's an empty threat, but you might be getting some emails. And ultimately (laughs) Fernando Alonso follows through on that threat and is reported to have sent emails directly to Bernie, um, including information that was highly, highly, highly um, problematic in the subsequent uh, subsequent investigation that was to come, including information such as um, asking and receiving information from Coughlin about certain elements and aspects of the 2007 Ferrari car. So so yeah, pretty crazy.
1: You know, it just, it brought back a lot of memories I had that I think have become buried because I remember that after this whole thing kind of went down and then, Fernando, obviously his tenure at McLaren, it's done, you know, it's, it's over. And, you know, we talked about like burning bridges. He, he moves on to Ferrari and incredibly, uh, you know, several years after that in 2015, he goes back to McLaren again. Okay. This is a new era, but you know, in, in the bigger context, there's not really a lot of daylight between Fernando McLaren, McLaren part two, then, you know, the Spygate scandal, you know, it just, uh, you know, it's, it was still very, very fresh. And I've kind of mellowed a little bit on Fernando at, you know, as the years have gone by, but, you know, it really bought, brought back some, some negative opinions and some negative emotions that, 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 that I had definitely.
2: Yeah. I mean, I guess this is sort of why I loved, reading this book is i think it it does it stirs up feelings so i can feel a little like i got to read through live through uh the this this time that i didn't actually get to watch and yeah this stuff that we've mentioned before which is that like i don't know there's a lot of there is a lot that is ugly in in this book some of which he sort of acknowledges is ugly some of which i think passes a little under the radar for, for him, <laughs> but that he, he sort of puts out there at least. Um, and so, yeah, I guess it's, it's sort of part of the reason that it felt like a, totally a document of, of yeah. formula one to me.
1: As, as we start to wind it up now, like we, we would be remiss if we didn't just sort of talk briefly about like Lewis's championship year. And it, it's interesting because, I really felt that, you know, Elvis didn't really approve of the way that that Lewis had conducted himself. He talks about how he'd sort of changed in a very short amount of time from this very humble young man to this very You know, very savvy and almost kind of like slippery character. And then he talks about some of these like never aired like interviews that Lewis had done for British TV that, you know, would have painted him in a very bad light. And, you know, basically, and he doesn't say who or what or where or when and exactly what was said, but you know, he did these interviews that would really not, you know, come, he would not have come across very good in the public's eye when Leo McLaren would get phone calls and or emails or whatever saying, you know, like, what do you guys want to do about this? And, you know, ultimately, these things never saw... The uh, you know the, the the light of day, but it's interesting because then he goes in to talk about 2008, which is Lewis championship season, and it was funny kind of like looking back in the rearview mirror. 2008 in McLaren was kind of like 2017 to 2021 at Mercedes because you got Lewis as 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 the alpha dog. He's got a, a driver that's capable, but not quite as good as him. He's an ultra nice guy. He's the ultra team player. Coincidentally, just like Valtteri Bottas... He's a Finnish driver by the name of Heki Kovalainen, and people who've been around will will recognize that name. And then Lewis goes on to win the the, the championship in Brazil that year when Felipe Massa was world champion for like 15 seconds until it was a Timo Glock spun out. And then Lewis only had to finish fifth. And, you know, because I think Sebastian Vettel had pipped him and dropped him out of fifth down to sixth. And then, you know, there was a, there was some rain and Glock put it off the track there, and then Lewis got what he needed to, to do and it and it's funny too because you could tell like when he starts talking about like 2008 there's a there's a definite shift is as, as much as you could tell he didn't approve of the way that Lewis handled himself in the Fernando year that when it came to 2008 he was definitely much 100% team Lewis team LA yeah, I right? think
2: this is like I, I kind of this is actually the part that I liked the least about the book was him being making these like very definitive statements about how Lewis was handling himself and like seeming to like enter in Lewis's head and be like he was humble now he's not humble anymore yeah. Yeah. and then like mm-hmm. just being like you know what never mind like Lewis is fine like you can tell it feels more like it's representative of what's happening in the team and in mm-hmm. the in the, it's like coloring everything about how he sees things. And so those parts, I was a little bit like, okay, you're making some very definitive statements about, like, why someone's doing something or, or what yeah. they're doing. And I, I, it's part of the reason that I think I actually really liked the, the parts of the book where he's talking about, like, his experience as a mechanic having certain things, like happened to him or, or Mm -hmm. like, like, like being given these race suits, et cetera, it felt like he was more able to describe like what was going on in his head, (laughs) uh, at those moments because yeah, I, I, I just take with so many grains of salt, that comparison, but that being said, I think like the clearest, or I take with so many grains of salt that, that, uh, sort of, Characterization um of of Lewis, maybe because again, like like I said, we then hit two thousand and eight, and he's like, and then Lewis was great again. <laughs> <laughs> You're yeah, like, hey. yeah,
1: it's it's funny too. I don't know if you guys caught it in the footnotes, but when he's in those final chapters, there was something about there that uh, he mentions, uh, and he did mention Anthony Hamilton uh, Lewis's dad being his manager. But one of the footnotes was he's uh, sort of reflecting back on it, uh, you know that uh, that that you know that they had this incredible journey that they literally came from nothing and worked really hard to get to Formula One, which they did. I mean, let's not take anything away from them, but he does make the point that uh, you know that that Anthony wasn't really experienced. In these kind of things, he said he couldn't help but feel that maybe Lewis could have benefited from having some better, like outside advice at the time. But again, you know that's you know his opinion on 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 the whole subject. But I guess now where it brings us to is the his exit from from Formula One, and maybe it's just I actually kind of found like the the way that you know the book kind of wrapped up to be a little bit disappointing and almost a little anticlimactic. But maybe that's just a Maybe because it was because this this book is basically you know in typical Formula One style. I mean it's it goes it goes from zero to sixty or zero to one hundred in about like a second and a half, and that tempo continues all the way. Uh, Along And then he basically gets to the end. He realizes his time in Formula One is over and he'd been kind of blogging on the side. And then he had some opportunities to do some media stuff. And that was his uh, exit strategy. He gets his job back in the factory at McLaren. And then he just kind of realized that, you know, I'm kind of done here and this factory job really isn't for me you know I'm useful and you know I, but I'm, I'm able to spend more time closer to home I'm not traveling as much but I'm just not getting the adrenaline rush but you know when I'm doing like the pit lane and I'm doing like this live interview in front of like you know a million people or whatever it is that kind of gives me a similar high as to when I was like you know on the pit crew for a pit stop or whatever and it just kind of ends and I found it a little bit disappointing but that's basically the way that his career act, you know wrapped up. So I guess in that sense, it is fitting to rather than kind of like dragging it out and, you know, kind of, re- you know, adding things that don't really add to the story itself. But it was, it wasn't really kind of the end I was hoping for, but like I say, it probably in context, it's the way that the story should have, ad- it, it should have ended.
2: Interesting. I, I mean, I liked the way he frames it is like we won a championship. I yes. wanted to win a championship. I wanted to win, a, like, see a driver win a championship. I'd done it, and I wanted to actually like adhere to like he he. I think the way he says it is he'd seen so many people sort of uh, achieve uh, the thing, and then be like, "What if I can do it again?" <laughs> yeah. Um, and. So I actually found it sort of, I mean, maybe there's a feeling of like Nico Rosberg getting his championship in retiring. (laughs) Yeah, Great
0: comparison. comparison. Perfect. But
2: like, I, I, I respect him for being like, cool. I'm out. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, that, that that's fair enough. But, you know, it's, it's just kind of funny, you know, like the way that I, I think maybe my disappointments at that point is that right from the very first paragraph on the first page, I started vicariously living through Mark Priestley and uh, his career at McLaren. And then, so I guess that, you know, my disappointment stems from the fact that, you know, he achieved everything that he wanted. He wanted to do a slightly different role and, you know, being a little bit older, his priorities in life were changing a little bit. And I guess that's where my disappointment comes from is that this really, you know, crazy, audacious, larger than life, incredible story that touched on so many key points in that first decade of the two thousands ultimately came to an end. And I mean, he's still doing things involved with formula one from a, from a different perspective, but I was just, uh, I was so hooked and I was, uh, you know, as much as I love some stories and kind of like turn my nose up in disapproval at others, you know, he, he really had me hooked on all these different stories that he recollected And All of a sudden it was over. And I'm just like, dude, Elvis, I'm not ready for it to be over yet. Don't you know, you can't do this to us, but you know, such is life. And, you know, the pressures of formula one. And, you know, like you said, uh, bird, he's just like, we, we achieved what we came here to do. I got that ship, and now it's, it's time to do something else. But.
2: But that's the beauty of, uh, sorry, Hamilton to jump in again, but, but that's the beauty of. Formula One, right? Like, I didn't realize that sports were this dramatic TV show you get to keep watching and it doesn't get canceled. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, there will be other people who will tell us about other chapters of, uh, you know, this like weird, wacky, slightly corrupt drama <laughs> that that is Formula One.
1: Forget the Kardashians, Formula One is literally the ultimate reality TV show, which uh, Netflix has done such a you know, fantastic job over the past several years of uh, of uh, conveying. So, okay, crunch time. I, I think we've covered all the high points, the low points, everything in between. Now, this, this is where the rubber hits the road, pun intended. On a scale of one to ten, Hammy, you get to go first. The Mechanic by Mark Elvis Priestley. a score eight out of 10, or sorry, out of 10, what are you giving this one?
0: So there's there's a lot to like in this book. I think for me, maybe what brings it down a little bit is I would love to have known more about the Mercedes McLaren dynamic, because that was Mm -hmm. a battle throughout this era as well. Um, I didn't touch on it, but I, I very much agree with Bird that I think he does a really great job of describing Ron Dennis and Martin Whitmarsh and other members of the team just through observations of how they conduct themselves. When it got to Lewis and to a lesser extent, Alonzo, he somehow found a way of getting into their head and describing their personality as if he was in them, which I thought was a little bit weird. And I would have preferred like, hey, you can describe how they conducted themselves just by describing what you saw don't psychologically inject yourself into them so i didn't like that but overall i thought the book was really really good and it was everything that i was hoping it was going to be and i loved how authentic it was and he described some really uncomfortable things like we talked Mm -hmm. about those hazing events which hopefully could never happen today but it lends a degree of authenticity to the book and it also helps pull back the curtain on what formula one was like 15 just 15 years ago which is crazy to think about it so for me i have very high standards so i'll give it a seven out of ten which is for me a good score
1: okay bird how about yourself uh what are are you going to rate the mechanic at
2: i mean i i always am troubled by the idea of of rating books because i feel like all Books sort of, I I read them for different reasons, but I think that if a listener is looking for a book that is a pretty honest historical document, like it is a person honestly describing their experiences uh, with all the flaws and successes and, and uh, that are in that. Um, I I find this book really worthwhile for that reason. And it's like a, it's a really readable version of that. It's someone being sometimes maybe a little too honest or, or showing themselves (laughs) in ways that they, they didn't always intend to. But um, like, I think for that reason, it's just a, it's a book that, that I think is really worth reading.
1: Yeah, cool. absolutely. Yeah, I'll I'll echo that sentiment. Uh, you know, I'm going to go one up on uh, on Hamilton. I'm going to give it an eight and a half out of ten. I really enjoyed Ooh. it. You know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, I appreciated Elvis's. Uh, you know. His candid nature, his honesty, and the fact that he, he did talk about some things that, and he even says that, you know, if you're sitting there at home reading this and you don't have a very high opinion of us right now, or you disapprove of it, I can completely un- uh, understand because he obviously realizes in retrospect what they did at the very least was very, very inappropriate. But, you know, having said that, After reading this book and, you know, getting to know him a little bit more, you can see why he, you know, why he stuck with the team so long. I mean, you know, all the, you know, all the good things and the bad things notwithstanding, I mean he's a guy that at that time you would want to have in your corner because he's obviously very skilled at what he does. You know, he's a hard worker and he's uh, committed to, uh, to the cause. And, you know, you, you could tell that, you know, especially with Kimi Raikkonen, he bonded with him, you know, quite well, you know, to the point that he felt that, uh, you know, emboldened enough to put, you know, Die in his gloves and give Kimmy spur fans, which uh, was a uh, completely uh, crazy. So, <clears throat> guys, as we wrap it up now, just uh, any final thoughts, Hammy, Birds, anything you want to add to it?
2: I think my final thought is that there are many other details. Uh, there's a thing I won't go into, but where they try to dry a track with a helicopter. There's all that was kinds cool. of bits cool. <laughs> in here that we have not gotten into that we haven't really fleshed out. So I don't know. That's there's tr- a lot that's left true. on the table. Oh, yeah. We, we discussed
1: a lot of like really of the, the headline grabbing ones, but like the helicopter one. That certainly was, uh, you know, a great story and 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 very Formula One for the early two uh, thousands. So go if you want to, f- you know, find out more about that. Pick up uh, the the mechanic by Mark Elvis Priestley to find out more. Okay, before we go, just want to give a shout out to JT the Human who provides the uh, intro music for this show, and also uh, Hammy. I think you have uh, something you want to to say. A quick reminder for everybody at home.
0: Yeah, make sure you give us a subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And if you can follow us on Twitter at F one pod and give us a rating and review on Spotify or Apple Music, it would be appreciated as always. And a big personal thank you to Bird. I know you and I have been conversing and chatting about Formula One for almost a year now. Uh, it means so much for you to join us on the show and break down this book and the first of what will eventually hopefully become a series.
2: It was yeah. my it was my honor. And I'm I think what I'm most excited about is, you know, I've read a a bunch of books at this point, but I'm really jazzed to hear what books your listeners suggest uh that I haven't yes. heard of or that yes. that I don't know about. I'm sure I, I was going to say
1: that you, you've stolen my Thunderbird. I was just going to say <laughs> that perhaps for the next book we throw it out there to the community and uh, they come up with a short list and then they can pick. As long as it's not War and Peace, I think we're good with it. Because
2: <laughs> or also, you know, there are some F1 books that because they're out of print, they're like a hundred and twelve dollars. And like, love this podcast. I'm not going to spend a hundred and twelve dollars on a Formula One book for y'all. So uh, the like maybe that caveat
1: as well fair enough fair enough well mark bird thanks so much uh, for this guys uh you know if you want to give us uh you know any suggestions for the next uh uh, book club uh, reading by all means do so send us a tweet send us an email at scooteryf1pod at gmail.com and that's it that's a wrap enjoy the show and so enjoy the summer break and we'll talk to you again very very soon bye for now